Oh, I went in the Navy, 1975. Probably before most of your parents was born. <laughs> you didn't have to laugh then. Right. This, I mean, this was back in the old days. Nowadays, you've all got health and safety stuff, laws, things you can do, things you can't do. Was, back in the days, used to make up as we went along, so you jumped in by the skinny teeth. A lot of the people I served with fought in World War II, because it wasn't that long after World War II. They've come to the end of their big career, uh, military career. They've done about 30 years at this stage. To us, us young lads, I mean, we, I joined when I was 15. These old boys, to us, they were just a joke. And they were covered in medals, they couldn't move, they couldn't run very fast. And now I'm in the position that they were. Can't run very fast, all the rest of it. But we used to rag them all the time. We didn't really appreciate them for what they were, the sort of history they had behind them. I mean, we had guys who were prisoners of the Japanese, and the stories they used to pass on to us were pretty horrific. But although it doesn't prepare you for what's going to come. Uh, with my training, I was uh, an engineer. Although they call it a stoker. There's no going down boilerooms and stuff nowadays with shovels and shoveling coal because it's gas turbines, it's push button starts. Uh, I'm also a combat medic, got a lot of experience for that. Gunshot wounds, people trained on IEDs, bits, people with bits missing. That sort of thing doesn't phase me out. Uh, being an engineer when you're on a ship alongside, there's not much use for people working down boiler rooms and engine rooms. So we used to find ourselves attached to army units, especially in Germany. So we had a lot of experience of what the army does. But the thing that uh, sticks in my uh, mind mostly about that is the army food. <laughs> Navy food on ships, you, you've chefs, you've got proper chefs. Although everyone rags them and says what horrible food it all is, they're, never, they're really, really good quality food. They really look after you. So they, they hang you on the back of the army section for a couple of weeks and you're eating out of little silver sachets. There's about six or seven thousand calories a day in a compo, yeah. box of compo, and you've got enough food for a male meal to fill your hand. That's all you get. It doesn't fill you up, but it's got lots of energy in it. We didn't understand all this, so we're eating about six or seven boxes of this a day. <laughs> <laughs> don't know where the energy is, don't, you don't know where it's coming from. So you get back on board ship and you can't fit through the hatches, you can't get down below. But it's uh, most of it, what it's about was teamwork. Absolute teamwork. You, it's really difficult to explain the depth of uh, teamwork and friendship and camaraderie. All the different words for it. You will know a stranger straight. The minute a stranger joins you, you know that person might be responsible for looking after your life, your health and safety, your very existence. So there's an automatic acceptance of everyone that comes to join you. That you don't do. Ideally, once you've gone out of basic training, there's no more picking on people for being too slow. You've proved yourself, you've got through training, you're part of the team, you're expected to do your job. If you're the sort of person that takes on board a job, and nah, I'll do it easy, I'll just, I'll just ignore it, you can let the side down. Would you be doing the same thing in a combat situation where people are really relying on you? And it might only be for dragging a couple of boxes of ammunition a few hundred yards to it, some slip trench. If you think, that's a bit dangerous, I'll do, it. I'll do that tomorrow, it might be quieter then. Some people will have that attitude. They're the, generally the people that they get weeded out in basic training. And basic training is massively rough, especially for this purpose. It's not designed to finish you off as a person. It's designed to reconstruct what's inside your head, to take away the civilian person that you are to a military person. For instance, if there's two ambulances outside, or two big vehicles outside crash, and one of them veers towards this way, it, your sense of self-preservation will want you to get out of the way. Your head might say, I'll stay here and help. Your body will say, go that way, and you'll follow it. Before you know what's happened. Your military training takes that away from you. Yeah, you've got to go to it. 
in a situation, you, you're your own police force, you're your own doctors, your own firefighters, you are everything. You, be, you have to be prepared to do lots of different jobs. Like I say, I'm a marine engineer, uh, combat medic, signals. You do lots of different pe- different jobs. So you can help out other people in times of stress. You might lose all your signals. You need other people there ready, trained up, ready to go. You've got um, the basic training. They try and make it as near to war situations as they can. They don't act, well, they do actually shoot at you. Not directly at the body, but you have uh, a live firing areas where you'd be crawling underneath the rounds being fired over you. On TV, you, you see the war films, that's no real reflection of what it's like. Because a round could go past you, and it, it's a real sharp click, but it's the sort of click that hurts your ears. You know what's gone over. Yeah, you hear the bang of the weapon as a bullet discharge, crack as it goes by your head, and thump as it hits what it's aimed at. Although you have to understand, if you hear a bang, crack, thump, it's aimed at you. And you, I mean, you can't take it personally. It's just a situation. You get a massive buzz of adrenaline on some of the really rough situations I got in when I was only like 16, 17. I mean, who's the oldest here, pupil-wise? What sort of age range are we talking about? How old are you? 14. 14, yeah. So, in my situation, another year, if I was here, I'd, I'd be inside, I'd be in. And six months following that, I'd be getting shot at. Would you feel prepared for that now? If they were to say, right, you're in, lad. No? But, and that's how they get you. But it's the basic training. They make, they make you want to be part of a team. And it's that wanting to be part of a team that helps with the camaraderie. Those that don't want to be part of a team, they're not particularly interested. They're just in there for the job, for the money. That's why uh, you don't really want situations like national service. Because you've got people getting funneled into the military. They don't want to be there. And how dangerous a situation is it going to be when you've got a bunch of people supposed to be looking after your back? They don't care. They don't want to be there. In terms of uh, unemployment as well, people joining just for the job. So you haven't got people actually want to be in the military situation. You either are the sort of person that can do the military side of life, or you're not. There's nothing wrong with not being able to. I mean, I couldn't survive in an office, not for 30 seconds. I'm really serious, there'd be a big ball of tears in the corner. Dyslexia's got not that much to do with it, I just don't want paperwork. <laughs> wasn't especially good at school. So the military suited me. But you can't necessarily use it as well, I didn't get anything exam-wise. It's going to the military, it's an easy option. It isn't. Because once you've joined, and you've done your basic training, you've got a military head forever. The rest of your life, Although you might be out, you might be 105 years old. You're still a military person inside your head. It's a programming that takes away your civilian side. It's trained you to be a military person, but they don't train you not to be. They don't train you to be a civilian afterwards. So you're used to going away a couple of months at a time. You come back with the lads. You go out for a few beers. But you know you're going to be away again for six months. So there's no alcohol at all. As a civilian, you come out. And you, you form up round a pint to plan what you can do for life, and then that's a lot of times that's when it squaddies fall over, is they stay around that pub table. On alcohol, it's, it was the thing when I was leaving school, I couldn't wait to get to a pub to have a bit. It's what a waste of life. What an absolute waste of life. People just drink their lives away. It's a horrible thing. It really is. I mean, I don't touch the stuff anymore. I've seen really good friends come by, get into the drink, because that's what they used to do, that's what they've been trained for. And the military do, a certain extent, encourage it. Whether you follow it or not, that's, you know. But breaking certain habits, 
flash it behind me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Probably shut that down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you will travel a lot in the military, or as a military person, you will go around the world. Although it won't be a holiday. You'll be getting off some plane and starting work. There's no climatisation, no time to buy postcards. You're getting there and you're getting on with the kit. But Richard knows, and he will be telling you in a bit, thinking he's going to have some climatisation time. No. Straight off the plane, spanners, the, the lot, yeah. So I'll board you enough. Pass it over to Richard now, engineer. Hi guys, my name is Richard. I joined the army about seven years ago, that was in 2005. And I joined in Birmingham as well. I used to live in Coventry at that time. And my experience in the army is quite vast because I joined the Royal Engineers. And with the Royal Engineers, it's like combat of all, jack of all trade. You are not just an engineer or a, a combat soldier or a medic. You are involved with a whole lot of things altogether as well. My experience within the army have been something that I've enjoyed as well. You know, as Paddy just rightly said, the army is the most biggest society of work environment that you could ever get. Not, and there is a vast range of jobs for everybody within the army. He was talking about the fact that he didn't want to be in the office and he wanted to be something like that. So a lot of you maybe, because it looks like a lot of you are quite much in the academic stream at the moment. So it might be like, oh, then the army is not for me. That is, that is not a real thing. The army is for everybody as well. You could be in the army and do any kind of thing that you want to be. You could be in the army to be an accountant, engineer, and any sort of profession that you may try to be aspiring to be in the army as well. Join the army as a little bit mature at that time because I was within my mid-twenties when I joined. So I knew what was in the world before joining the army, unlike Paddy who joined straight from school, sort of thing. And after my basic training, or when I was in basic training, it was everything about teamwork, group, and all sorts of things. I can't imagine that somebody doing something wrong in this class, would be, the whole class would be punished for it. That is not like in the army. Here, the single person will get punished, but in the army, everybody get punished for it. And why? It's just to bring that sort of unity and not to uh, discard individual behaviors as well so that you watch out for what your colleague is also doing. Because if he is going to mess up and you are going to get punished, you are going to tell him you have to stop before you get noticed or anything like that. That was one of the biggest training that you could ever get. Here, everybody may like to be in his own room, you know, be on his own phone or PlayStation sort of thing. In the army, you, you are in the form of a dormitory sort of system, you know, and whatever everybody, you get used to people. And when you join basic training, you are with a group for six months of your life. You don't go home, or you usually go home once between that six months. So these are the people of maybe 20 guys or ladies that you'll be with throughout that six months. And imagine being with somebody you know, even being with your mom and dad for continuous six months, it's like, I've had enough. Left alone people that you just met within the last minute, and you're going to be there with them for that period of time. And it takes that a lot of uh, selfless commitment to be within that environment. After basic training, I've been to places, I've been to interesting places, I've been to hot places, I've been to cold places, 
Yeah. And imagine the father moving from being on exercise in Canada with a temperature of minus 40, working outdoors, not indoors. You know, we normally wage when it's cold in UK, but it's really warm in here. <laughs> you know, it's really warm in UK compared to now or maybe during the February time in Canada. Minus 40, working outdoors, you need to get a job done. It builds that sort of momentum within you that whatever the situation is around you, you don't need to concentrate on what is around you, but you need to concentrate on what you need to do in that sense. And moving from there, did a couple of exercises in Canada for three months, went to Afghan for six months, and it was really interesting. You get to Afghan, when I got there, and what my trade was, I was in Boston for 24 hours, then straight into the fall, or straight into the front line that you just need to go and fight. And it was more about not fighting for your life, but fighting for your colleagues as well. You understand? It's, it was about your colleagues, and it was about people that is sitting next to you, or somebody who is you know that well as well. And that sort of development really is straight into deep sea. It's because you don't really know how to swim, and you have just been thrown into a deep sea, and it's like, could you just come out, sort of thing. And it was really interesting. There is a lot of learning that you get out of it, and there is a lot of experience that you may not like to experience anymore whilst you are there. But as soon as you come back to UK, and it's like, oh, it's boring here. I want to get back, sort of thing. Throughout that whole period, did quite remarkable situations, and some of them may be scary, some of them may be interesting, and all sorts of things that you may not. You may anticipate to be quite much dramatic and the interesting thing that was just mentioned with our colleagues this morning was that when you are in that sort of situation little things become so important to you you know even the reading of a magazine you know it's really interesting and it's like I don't imagine how many of you will receive a letter through the post and will be really eager to open that letter and see what is in there you know but when you are in that sort of situation, a letter from a friend, a family or missus or boyfriend or whatever it is, it's like you, you open that letter with a spark of a light and just want to see what's in there. You know, yucky bars and snacks and all sorts of things that you may just walk down the stairs and just grab one was like something you used to have. It's just like Christmas. You know, to have one uh, mass bar, it's just like have Christmas because you normally don't have it sort of thing and the eagerness just to come back to UK and just have maybe some McDonald's or Burger <laughs> was something so interesting and all these building in life to the extent that you can do without and you can do with as well which was really interesting covering from there moved back into UK and the experience was quite much dramatic a big change got back from the airport Sunday afternoon Monday morning, I was down working in the shop and all those sort of things. You get all those kind of feelings around you. Every little sound sounds so strange to you. You know, everything that sounds around you if affects what you are thinking. Is that a friendly thing or is that something different? And the only thing I would like to share that was a bit dramatic was the fact that when I came back, I couldn't sit in one position for five minutes. 
because we had a five minutes rule. You sit in one position for five minutes, you might be the next casualty. So it was like moving position all the time. And in my own living room, I used to sit down, be watching a film, and I would move about five, ten positions before the film's end, or whatever I'm doing ends. You know, it was something that some people get over it. Some people live with it for life, which is really dramatic to experience as well. Talking about going into battle or going away and all sorts of things. Later part of my career, the last four years of my career, it was like a flash. For example, I joined my specialist unit, engineering unit, in January, came back from holidays, January holidays, came back first week in February, walking to the office, had a warm welcome from my new colleagues and team. Then a staffy just walked in. Oh yeah, I've just come back from holiday. Ah, are you Richie? Yeah, I'm Richie. Oh, nice meeting you. Could you be ready? Uh, are you ready for us to move? Where? Ah, I'm going to Afghan on Wednesday. This was on Monday. You know, and it's that sort of life that you have to be ready at every time. You know, every point of time that in your life you will be moving somewhere, and you are not going with that sort of anger or something like that sort. Because what happened is that as soon as you know that you're going out there, your movement to Afghanistan or to any battlefront is like saving a life for somebody else. And on the other hand, you have to be that prepared for any eventuality that may happen as well. You know, you don't know. Probably you've already had maybe an appointment with your or your case or oh, I'll take you down to playground on the weekend, don't worry. But that weekend you might not even be in UK to experience that experience with him. Which is quite much interesting. It's quite much a fascinating environment. Something so big and full of different activities, different experience. There is no single experience that everybody may have had within the army. Everybody experience is quite different. And as much as you guys are carrying on with your course and learning about what the army is about, what experiences come out of the army, it will be quite interesting to maybe have questions from you guys later on during the class. So I'll now pass it on to Mark. Okay. Mike. I'm Mike. I uh, served in the Royal Artillery for nine years. Royal Artillery, all the big weaponry, everything else. <laughs> The drop zone. <laughs> All the toys. That's ever been That's ever been one, yeah. Well, right. I know there's a drop shorts, Mike. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> <Not> that. <laughs> right. I joined as a, a junior leader, so I was actually in basic training two weeks before my 16th birthday. So basically, because I was one of the youngest in my year at school, so I was born in July, so I ended up quite young and straight into basic training with the army, which uh, was something I was really proud to do, something I wanted to do, because it's always been in my family, you know, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, all soldiers, and I felt quite honoured to carry on that tradition. Anyway, I uh, served a year in training, and uh, learning a skill, gunnery, signals, all the rest of it, you know, and I actually attended a military college as well to get education promotion certificate, so your schoolwork doesn't stop here, even if you join. Mm -hmm. It's true. More horses for courses, I believe oh, yeah. the terminology is. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
I served um, a great deal, well I've done several tours of uh, Bosnia. Anyone hear about Bosnia and conflicts? Slightly older ones, obviously. <laughs> no, which is something that is pretty much on our own doorstep. Mm. You know, these people, Europeans, horrific, truly horrific. But um, as uh, Richard was saying, it's the little things, the little things that make things better. I was asked to share a bit of a story with you. Um, I was actually posted out into. Bosnia and it was quite rough when I was out there, I was one of the first out <coughs> and nobody had any mail in about two months because where we were posted out on an outpost, you know, we couldn't get into the main area of operations because it was too dangerous, they couldn't fly anything out to us, so you know, we were pretty much living off our backs, the lads were in the lowest point, you know, no news from home, no communication whatsoever, just blotted out, just doing our job. So. Uh, I took it upon myself to kind of make everybody's day. I got a Land Rover, I uh, got my body armour on, weapon, helmet, everything I needed. I got more body armour and I wedged it down to the side panels of the Land Rover <laughs> and I just went for it, straight into Banja Luka, straight, you know, an hour through sniper country, the lot. And I got there and I got that mail, got everybody's letters for them crammed it all in, shut it all down, just hammered it back, you know, didn't stop for anything, nothing, fast as I could. And uh, as I approached our camp gate, everyone come running back, going, oh, you're right, you're right. I'm thinking, wow, well, I can't see anything. I'm just there with a pair of goggles, you know, I look like something off Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I get to the Land Rover, and it is pepper-potted, seriously, gunshots all over it. You know, got myself in a bit of trouble for that one, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth it. Yeah. But it was worth it, because at the end of the day, it isn't... In, in, in the military scene, especially in the army, there's no individual. Everybody's a team. You know, it's about, it's about the man stood next to you, you know. How could you get on with your job if you couldn't trust him? Seriously, that's the way it's, it's spread into you from basic training. You know, the individual's gone. Rambo won't last five minutes in the British Army. <laughs> Seriously, not a chance. <laughs> He's not a team player. <laughs> but, uh, no, and as for the basic training, you eat as a team, you sleep as a team. You work as a team, you fight as a team. Everything is orientated around the team. You're even punished as a team. If one person does something wrong, everybody is punished. Okay, so if someone forgets to do something, well, you can fetch your bottom dollar. Everybody's out on a five-mile run wearing nothing but a respirator. Mm. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, getting back to uh, the artillery, I worked on all the aspects of artillery. I started off on the field guns, actually, big, big guns. And uh, throughout my career, I progressed. And I was actually running around the front line like an idiot guiding artillery fire to take out tactical installations even beyond enemy lines when needed so you know I got to see quite a lot and uh, I did enjoy my job and I was proud to have served yeah, yeah. alright guys alright I'll pass you on to Alex right. from El Rose. yeah okay 
Right, first of all, I'm not one of these, like, one of these guys, I'm, I'm not ex-military, I'm actually, actually an ex-copper, but don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but my main connection with it, all three of my children have served in the, um, in the services. I've still got one daughter who's still serving in the Royal Artillery. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my eldest son was, was in, the, in the Signals, uh, at Brancourt, finishing the job at Brancourt. And my other son was in the, in the RAF. And uh, he was one of the guys who last uh, was trying to get these guys aeroplanes to fly back and forwards from from uh, Afghan and Bosnia. So I'm a little bit of a uh, interloper as far as concerned. But uh, when my daughter got me into this helping heroes uh, as a county volunteer. I, I work for what work for help heroes. I'm volu- county. I'm a volunteer. I don't get paid, but um, I'm sort of an ambassador for for helping heroes. Help heroes is a charity started in 2007. It uh, came as a chance visit to the Selyuk Hospital in Birmingham by Brimmer Parry. Uh, they went to see a friend of their, uh, one of their uh, a son of one of their friends, and were quite horrified to find a woodfall of very, very seriously injured men and women. You probably all read, and these guys probably tell you that um, not only is a threat from gunfire, grenades, etc., but one of the biggest threats they, we faced, and the army faced over the years now, is the IED, the improvised explosive device. They always give us a silly name, don't they? It's a homemade bomb, <laughs> indiscriminate. Um, you never know, these guys never know where their next footfall is going to be, the last footfall, or whether their foot's going to be there when they finish it. It causes a lot of deaths, but for every death, there is also a large number of injured. Some are physically injured, others are not physically injured. They apparently have gone away with it. But they're all injured to some extent. And it's, it's these people that come back to this country. You've got to get into these days that the medical training that our guys like these have had, and our medics that we've got out in, out in the field, are so brilliant these days, they're saving lives that 10 years ago would never ever survive. They're bringing guys back with their limbs, which is unbelievable. The evacuation team, the Kazivak evacuation team, you see the, the Chinook helicopters flying in. It's like you know, an emergency helicopter like no other, and the experience on those keeps these guys alive coming back. And then Camp Bastia, wonderful hospital, um, pioneering in many respects. A lot that can get through Camp Bastion and get back, and they get flown back within 48 hours into Birmingham. You see the Selyuk Hospital in Birmingham, it's now moved to the new Queen Elizabeth Hospital there. A dedicated military wing there, um, run by both civilian and military personnel. Again, the work they do there is remarkable. I think he's probably the world leader in trauma, in trauma um, recovery. And it's in this ward in Selyuk at that time that they saw these guys, and they said, you know, we've got to do something to help them. Okay, there's they were helping the future, they want to help them now, while they're recovering. And so they had to raise some money. And the first thing they, the first project they looked around to do was to ask where they can spend this money, and their whole aim was to spend it now. Not after they've recovered, not when they've left the military, to help them while they're recovering, while they're in the state, somewhere while they're in comas. What can we do now? And the first, yeah, the first thing they asked for by the, the head of the military there was to build him a swimming pool at Headley Court. Now, Headley Court is a, a defence rehabilitation unit where the majority of the injured go after they've been through the hospital system. It's a rehabilitation, gets them back, they, 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 they help yeah, aesthetics, all, all manner of medical help they get down there to get them back on their feet or back into normal living. With the number of injuries involving the loss of limbs, hydrotherapy is an absolutely brilliant form of exercise. Um, 
actually levels people out. You know, a non-swimmer and a swimmer can be levelled out in a swimming pool. But they had a small hydrotherapy pool down there, which was just insufficient for the number of engines they got down there. They were actually using a local bus, and unfortunately, the locals there complained about these guys coming in there, these very badly injured guys um, going in there, and the look of them. They didn't like the look of them using the public bus. Everybody else, and they actually complained for local papers. The national press gave them such a hard time, but it was not as embarrassing for the for, for, for the, okay, they're in public embarrassment. Think about the guys themselves that were going in there, that how embarrassing they were to walk out the first time, having been a six foot two strapping individual, to being shuffling on a, on a, on a stick, on a, on a wheelchair. It was embarrassing them. So they wanted a, a swimming pool, and they built a brand new swimming pool, swim gym complex down Henley Court, which they can now all go and do the hydrotherapy. Now, health heroes can't suddenly become a charity that's going to give giving to everybody, because uh, they haven't got the experience. But there are lots of charities and organisations out there that have got all the, have got the experience, have been doing it for years. And so what Health for Heroes have started doing is to give out grants. Grants to specific projects, not just to go into the funds, not just to top the funds that say, have you got a project that you can help our guys with now, you'll get a grant for it. And the list is quite impressive uh, of, what the, of, of, of all the charities that have gone out that have been given out to. Um, there's a lot of list here now, and it's, it's, I mean, it's running it's running out about sort of well over 100 million pounds that have gone out to all these things, and it's all gone to help the family because these are guys are all part of the family. And how we, how you can help them through to get them back? A lot of them, some will go back to military life with problems, but the majority of the guys who have been very badly injured will never ever go back into the military, no matter what world in the world our, our leaders have got there. We're cutting down, we're drawing down, we're pushing people, making people redundant. There is no room now for an injured serviceman. No matter how much we should look after them, there isn't. They've got to go out to civilian life. But how do they go out to civilian life without the help and experience of all the other charities? You heard about Buddy here. He, he goes at 15. A lot of the guys now are going at 15, about 18, and joining now. And then I'm, I'm, they go down to the recruiting office quite regularly because they're starting down there. They're a good friend of mine. And you know, 16, 17, or just a few years old, are going there joining up. They've got no experience of life when they go out there. Paddy had no experience of life when he got out there. He went into the army family and he said the teamwork was there. Suddenly you come back with a bit of luck. You've got some ability. With a bit of luck, you've got your brains. And no matter how beaten up you are, legs and arms, etc., they're bits of dangling bits hanging there. Inside there, there's still a person. And that person's now going to suddenly go outside with his injuries, with his disabilities, and find out what civilian life is about, and civilian life is hard for them. So, all the money that's going at the moment is going towards going towards the rehabilitation and training. The military set up a, a defence recovery capability. Another big long words. Basically, can we can we help these guys go back into civilian life? And keep that at the moment. Uh, different our, our, our personnel recovery centres, uh, four centres built around the um, in various garrison towns, where the guys can be given training, inspire, inspiration, and help to see where they can go on in the future. Um, the flagship house at the moment is a thing called Tedworth House down in Tedworth, very close to where Health Hero started. Um, brilliant, brilliant thing there. It's, uh, it was in a Georgian mansion which the, um, the Ministry of Defence were going to mothball for about £900,000 a year. And uh, Health Hero said, I want that building. 
it's a beautiful place. It's been it's been it's been done up inside. It used to be a mess, a, a military mess. And if, if any of you have seen a heard of military messes, all um, Captain Noby G and everybody else on the wall, and you know the majors and such like. It's been stripped around there. It's a nice, health, light place where people can go in there and relax. And it's not only giving them the training they need, but it's also a hub for all the other all the other charities. And the charities are moving in there so that they've all got a place with a big room where they can move into. And it's a one-stop shop. If anybody needs help for housing, SAFA, Royal British Legion, it's there at one stop there. So we haven't got to be trawling around finding all the finding all, all the help they need. It's not just the guys as well, it's, it's the families. Um, these are also volunteers. The families they're the conscripts. And it's the families that very often have to pick up the pieces or help pick up the pieces. So they need help as well. So that's again is the, uh, the one of the aims of these recovery centres. Now we're talking about the man's chasing in guys in London, and you've got it an absolute inspiration. But what was the ones that walked away? The ones that didn't get injured. One of the first projects that Help for Heroes was asked to help for was with a charity called Combat Stress. Combat Stress started in 1919, after the First World War. It was then called Shell Shock. Nowadays it's called PTSD. And the numbers now that are coming through from through Afghanistan, and from Bosnia, and from Iraq, and before there. I could, we're putting quite a stretch on the, on the, on the charity. I've got enough to get moved in a few things, but there's a, some idea of what combat stress is dealing with at the moment. Um, last year, it received 1,443 new referrals. Currently, it's a caseload of 4,800 people on their books, including 228 Afghanistan veterans and, two, and 589 Iraq veterans. So you see, it's a huge, huge problem. It's one, I think, which the guys here will say was mainly kept under the carpet a lot until a few years ago. It was not acknowledged. It didn't want to be acknowledged. If, if you acknowledged that you had PTSD, you were oh, you were cast around. It, it wasn't there. It has now become positive. They are now looking out for it. I've, I've got to hope to think that the sort of media coverage and the acknowledgement that we are now getting the fact that guys are suffering like they are suffering and there's men and women by the way there are a lot of women that have been very very badly injured is, is now being acknowledged and now starting to give some credence to giving these help and so the first body where they've got a new wing to their house there to now support to which house combat stress and give three million pounds towards their um, at the end of the year within appeal which is a hope to include more case workers and get more out there and give the help and support they need so that's sort of the challenges that we're looking at. The, uh, what's the future for these people? Well, it's bleak in many respects. And every bit of money that has been raised for Help for Heroes, it's a civilian charity, it's all three services as well. I mean, we've been, the, the RAF have had money, and the Marines, and also the, uh, the, R, uh, and the uh, Navy have all had uh, grants to improve their facilities that way. It's the future for these people, that they're some of these 18, 20 year old now, and they're going to go on for 50, 60 years, and they're still going to be quite helping them all the way through there. One of the newest um, interventions or uh, projects we've got going to help the wounded um, involve dogs. A lot of guys are getting help from PTSD, from PTSD, a lot of getting help from mobility again, and even that. But there's some who 
unfortunately, will never ever be other than dependent for the rest of their lives. Either brain injury, severe back injury, or severe trauma, that's like, and they're always going to need help. Those that are still a little bit more mobile, um, semi, semi independent life, but we're just turning team up with a thing called Canine Partners. And it's dogs for the disabled, basically, that's what I mean. And it's got seven dogs in training, three dogs out, seven dogs in training, which are helping out the guys to live their own lives. So they do that, they, they enter the washing machines, they enter the door. They do, they, these dogs are amazing. But not only are they amazing, they're also a brilliant, brilliant comradeship for them. And uh, they're their soulmates. And I'm looking for me one lad over at Cuffs recently. He, he's very badly beaten up, but he's, he's in a wheelchair. He can do a certain amount of ability, but not a lot. But this dog, Kizzy, is his soulmate. And probably does more help for him mentally as he does physically. Um, so what happened now? So